Tick, tick, tick. The death knell for regional economies. And Australia tortures a father of six under US orders. Coming up on this week's episode of The Citizen's Report. Welcome to The Citizen's Report. It's the 14th of April 2023. I'm Robert Barwick and I'm joined today by Citizens Party researcher Richard Barden. Hello, Richard. Welcome. Thanks, Robbie. Um, in this week's episode, we're going to uh, give you an update on the mortgage cliff. We'll get to that in a second. But first, um, the, the NAB is marauding, rampaging across Australia crushing towns as fast as it can, and there's a, there's a giveaway. There's a little um, reverberation that happens first before you know the, mar- the, the rampaging NAB is coming to crush the bank in your town. Um, we're going to talk about that. Uh, and then we do have to go through a really horrible case that's, that's underway in Australia right now. It goes to the heart of Australia not having any sovereignty. We're just literally torturing a guy, uh, a decent family man, under American orders, and only because he did nothing wrong. What happened is... Scumbags in Washington decided they wanted to go to war with China, and then they revo- you know that, that just allowed them to recast everything this guy had done his whole life. But this is Australia doing it on their behalf. So this is overtones of Assange, etc. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. But remember, um, please, it's very we do this show so we can get the word out. Um, uh, we're not here to just commentate. We're here to try and change what we're talking about, and our relationship with our viewers is very important. And we need more of them. So help us share the show. Um, by liking it, sharing it to your, to your networks. Subscribe if you're not a subscriber, and if you do, ring the bell icon so you're notified of updates. Comment, absolutely comment. Engage in the, in the process through comments below. That helps to attract the algorithm and get more promotions for the show. And um, donate. You know, the, the, the Citizens Party is the most democratically funded political party in Australia, which means we rely entirely on the donations of ordinary Australian people to back the fights that we've taken up. So there's a, there's a donate button on the link below. Um, with that said, let's get into it and see if we can keep this under an hour. <laughs> All right. Tick, tick, tick. The death knell for regional economies. If your town is on this list that I'm about to read out, expect to lose your National Australia Bank branch in the very near future. Biggenden, Blackwater, Burke, Bright, Chinchilla, Cloncurry, Cobar, Kahuna, Condobolin, Cunamble, Corrigan, Cunnamulla, Dongara, Dowran, Dunsborough, Edenhope, Finlay, Gilgandra, Gloucester, Inglewood in Queensland, Injune, Inverloch, Jamestown, Japarrat, Karatha, Katanning, Calabaran, Kerrang, Kojanup, Kununurra, Kyogle, Lake Cargallago, Manjimup, Miles, Milmerin, Mitchell, Mullumbimby, Mundubra, Nagambi, Narragin, Nil, Northampton, Namurka, Ningan, Oberon, Orbost, Oyen, Pittsworth, Port Hedland, Proserpine, Quilpie, Quirindi, Quirindi, Rainbow, Richmond, Scone, Southwest Rocks, St Arnold, Tenterfield, Tarang, Timboon, Walcher, Wallen, 
Warren and Winton. And we'll put the... Um, I'll tell the, the producer as I'm going through that list, I want, I want it displayed on the screen where you see I'm reading out the ones in black, which are NAB branches that haven't closed because the ones in red have already closed or been notified they're going to close. And what precedes the closure, Richard, of all these towns, um, these banks in these towns, is the first thing NAB does is reduce the hours mm -hmm. of the bank, right? And then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because they reduce the operating hours, the business hours. They claim then that there is less business, mm -hmm. and that's the justification for closing the bank. Yeah, customers are voting with their feet. <laughs> That's right. Um, they are. They, they're voting with their feet up to the bank door and they knock on it and it's shut, right? Yeah. What can they do? And we saw this in the, when they got caught out in this testimony at the hearing in um, Sale. Hey, sale, yeah, yeah. The week. Yeah, because it was the MAFRA branch. Um, uh, and, and actually, we'll put a link below to the, the article that the journalist Dar Webster wrote about that um, because NAB's like, butter wouldn't melt in their mouth. Oh, yeah, no, no, we... We're following our customers to where they want to go. Look at these, look at these figures for the MAFRA branch. Nobody's using it. Mm. But what they didn't say in the whole hearing is, yeah, because you reduced the hours massively and then as of the th mm. last quarter of the, year, of the year, you had it shut the whole time. That's what the figures represented, but they didn't say that, right? So NAB is doing a Swifty here and we have to highlight it because we want people to understand there's one bank in this regional banking inquiry process, one bank, that when they were asked, will you pause your closures for the duration of the inquiry, the other three of the big four gave some form of undertaking. Commonwealth Bank said yes, but they only had two banks that they were, that they were planning to close. So mm -hmm. they said yes. Um, Westpac said yes, but they didn't say, well, there's seven branches here we're going to keep closing, but these other six we won't close. Okay, so they, they sort of met them halfway. ANZ said, well, we're not going to stop the closure of the ones that we planned, but we will not do any more closures. We will not announce any new closures. That was ANZ's undertaking. NAB said, get stuffed. <laughs> they literally said, get stuffed. We're going to keep doing what we're going to do. And that's why... The harbinger of a bank of a NAB branch closing closing is the the, the reduced um, hours. Um, we'll put this on the screen. Back in 27, and we often cite the independent journalist Dale Webster because she has done so much work on this. She has documented the whole problem like nobody else has. But she wasn't always an independent journalist per se. Um, back in 2017, she worked for the Weekly Times, which is Victoria's major um, rural newspaper. And she wrote this story about bank branch closures then and NAB closing its, brank, its branch in Western Victoria and Harrow. And in the story, she named 13 Victorian towns where NAB was operating under reduced hours then. And she said this raises the question about whether those banks are going to close. And those towns she named then were Edenhope, Garoke, Japarit, Caniva, Balmoral, Rainbow, Bort, Barham, Swifts Creek, Orbost, Mafra, Hayfield and Yarram. And of those 13 towns she named back in 2017, 10 have closed, mm -hmm. right? And the, the, the three that are left, like um, Orbost and Rainbow, uh, etc., they're on the list that I first read out, right? They will be on the chopping block um, eventually. So this is the bank that, um, you know, is just, like I said, rampaging across Australia. 
We're highlighting this because the reason we got up this inquiry is this is immensely damaging to these regional economies. And that's why we have a solution of a postal bank because our solution is premised on the simple fact that towns need face-to-face financial services. These banks want to live in their digital utopia and say, we've got enough critical mass of the public, we can force them into digital banking, hang the consequences, because our profits are all that we care about, not the servicing of the, not serving the public. That's what they want to do. Um, but the real world doesn't work that way. And so if we could create a postal bank where face-to-face banking services, full banking services are guaranteed to every community in Australia, that is the solution. It's why we help push for this inquiry. But that's a fight to get that postal bank up. We need to force... To, to, to draw out the government to actually take some serious action against the banks in the meantime, right? Um, and that's what's going to be looked at in this, with this inquiry. I've been, I started calling these towns like the, the two that have just, um, the two latest NAB branches that, that NAB has indicated are going to close are Japarit in, in uh, Western Victoria and Inverloch in, um, uh, on, the, on the east coast of the Bas- what they call the Basque Coast of Victoria. So they're closing in July. I called those councils in those towns. They weren't aware, really aware, that there's an inquiry into regional bank closures. And so this is very important. There's two weeks left for submissions to this inquiry. And we're raising this now in this context because if, you're, if you've watched, listened to what I've just said and you recognise you're, you're in an area that includes some of those towns, help us Get the message out, please. You yourself, look up the councils in those affected towns that you recognise. Look up the councillors. They usually have their mobile numbers there. Call the mayor and ask them, do you know that there's a regional bank inquiry? Do you know that this bank in this town is in danger of closing because it's on reduced hours? There's a regional banking closure inquiry. Please make a submission. Engage in the process so that this has as much information as possible so it can become the, the best possible inquiry that we can make it. And, and that is something that's really, really important. If you, the viewer, can participate that way, that would be immense. That would be um, incredibly helpful. Because it's only, it's only when you know, the public can either can, can sit there and and you know, whinge about these changes that always leave people behind um, and say, oh, yeah, the, you know, the elite rigged the show for itself. What we try and do here in this process, Richard, is get the public involved mm. in the parliamentary process and say, you get, a, you get a, 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 um, a spot at the table, you're forcing yourself to the table where you cannot be ignored because we can bring the public along in numbers, right? And that, but that involves doing things like you know, making helping us get the message out in this way. So please, um, uh, please do that. Because now we'll move on to another thing involving the banks, um, which is why I wanted to... um, Richard's written an article about this. Uh, And it relates to this question of branch closures in this way. Martin North, um, who's now... I notice if you look at Martin's Walk the World channel, um, he looks like he's getting quite set up there in the UK, but he's still doing a lot of Australian stories, and I'll, I'll get myself on there pretty soon. Martin is a banking expert, and he always made the point to me at, in the last couple of years as we've been talking about this, that the banks are trying to spin these closures as a positive. Oh, yeah, this is, the, this is an evolution of new technology. When in reality, they're desperate because 
they know they've got themselves into the mother of all binds through their own policies. And they're looking down the path where everything can drastically go pear-shaped for them, right? And part of what they're doing is trying to, you know, get rid of all the possible costs they can and move to a model where, there's, where they can think they can survive in the digital world, etc. because they know they're heading for trouble. And the biggest bind they got themselves into is over, is over mortgages. So we've been talking in Australia for a while, Richard, about the mortgage cliff mm. that we're heading towards. What's that look like? Well, and there's a, uh, the financial review the other day, the other week had a graphic um, of it that we can put up. But what it is, is there was record low interest rates for however many years. Um, you know, the RBA brought every, kept coming down and down and down and down and down. Well, there's a great RBA graph we'll put on the screen where you can see that. It, it went down after 2000, it went up, started going up to 2008. And then when it started going down after the GFC... It went down, 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 down to virtually zero. Yeah, point ended up at 0.1% for a couple of years during the pandemic business, along with a lowered serviceability buffer of 25 instead of the usual 3%, what they assess your ability to repay a loan at, if interest rates rose by this much, would you still be able to pay it? So, so the old one was 3%, the buffer, and they reduced that to 2%. Yeah, it's back up to 3 now, but, you know, <laughs> horse bolted. Yep. Um, so there are all these people, especially over the last couple of years, um, who have borrowed at these record low rates uh, with record large mortgages, and now those rates are going through the roof and they can't pay. Um, and at least they won't be able to pay when it comes off the, the short fixed term, usually only three years, sometimes less. Um, and we're one of the few countries in the world that does that. Um, most fixed rate mortgages have a life. If it's fixed, it's 30 years. Fixed right? for life, yeah. Um, so when these reset onto variable rates, all of these people are going to have to find an extra three, four, five hundred dollars you know, up to, in some cases, large mortgages in places like Sydney up to, I've seen some reports saying that a lot of people are going to have to find an extra $1,500 a month just to pay the increased interest, interest yep. on their uh, repayments on their mortgages. And yeah, that's, this has already started, but and, and, nowhere yeah. near the majority yet. No, because uh, the RBA said back in February that there are 800,000-odd mortgage facilities. Now, that's not necessarily that number of borrowers, but it's going to be somewhere in the ballpark. Some people have you know, split mortgages, sometimes there are multiple parties to one mortgage and so on. But roughly that number of households are resetting to variable rates this year mm. um, at a time when the cost of living are skyrocketing, wages are not, they're going backwards in real terms. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and house prices have fallen. Now, they've stabilised in the last couple of weeks. That may or may not just be a temporary phenomenon you know there's usually a seasonal uptick this yeah. time of year so that could be reflective of that you know invert that with the and there's the always down, and, and, downfall and it, every downturn. time this market moves especially down there's always this this temptation for the people sitting on the sidelines of they're trying to pick, pick the bottom mm. <laughs> i'll jump in now right now's a good time yeah buy the dip buy the dip and so yeah there's little upticks and then and then it can dip even further and then yeah. a little uptick that sort of thing but what's going on here is why the banks are getting worried publicly worried, some of them now, um, is that for 25 years, they've 
deliberately been building up a housing bubble with the complicity of the regulatory agencies that were set up mm. in the reforms after the 97 financial inquiry, uh, financial system inquiry, the Wallace uh, Commission, they were set up to enable this. Um, so they've built the whole economy on uh, a mortgage bubble uh, plus you know, mining and resources, but that's not the bank's outlook. That's, that's not their purview, really. Um, and now everyone's losing money. Housing investors are losing money, the landlords, because the rents are going through the roof, yeah, but their costs of yeah. their mortgages and their services and you know, materials for renos and all that are going up even, even faster. Yeah. So they're going backwards. The, the project, the, the semi-comedic current affairs show reported um, the other day that... Uh, uh, an average renters are forking out an average of an extra three hundred and fifteen dollars a month compared to last year, but investors are getting charged an extra eight hundred and thirty-five dollars a month on average on a five hundred thousand dollar variable loan, and of course a lot of them are much bigger than that. Sometimes yeah. multiples of that. So, and there's a huge number of investors out there. Yeah, and so some of them they can't get cash flow anywhere else. Uh, they're so they're having to sell off. Um, People who are not already in what they call mortgage prison, you know, underwater loans, their their outstanding mortgage is worth um, more than what their house is now worth and they can't sell it except at a loss and they can't refinance because they don't meet Mm -hmm. the serviceability buffers. Um, So anyone, anyone else who's, anyone who's not in that boat is seriously, is either doing it or seriously considering selling out, um, which has been part of what's been sending the prices lower. Um... And at some point, that's going to blow up on the banks because that's their whole business model, basically for you know for all intents and purposes. Yeah, and there's four, there's the big four banks, which are eighty percent of the market, mm. all have around. They're remarkably similar. They all have around sixty five percent of their business in mortgages, mm. and so a crisis in one is going to be a crisis in all. They they share tens of trillions of dollars of derivatives exposure yeah. between them. They all buy each other's mortgage-backed securities to, yeah, yeah. and along with a bunch of other institutions. They all borrow abroad at the same... They're all susceptible to the same currency fluctuations that are starting to kick in now. So when, there's, so it, so when you're talking about a housing sector crisis, there's no way it's just a housing market crisis. It's a, the housing market crisis is, by definition, a banking sector crisis. Yep. And if it's a banking sector crisis, for the four banks that represent... 80% of our financial system, it's an Australia-wide economy crisis. Yeah, and for example, um, the CEO of Westpac, Peter King, has been publicly warning for over a month now, that, um, or about a month now, that um, these interest rate hikes are a blunt tool that they're trying to beat down inflation with. It's not working. Um, saying that they are uh, now the, it's off a low base, but nonetheless, the the trajectory is what's important here. The, the people in or approaching default, the rate is going up uh, very quickly now. He told a business summit uh, on Tuesday, just before the 4th of April, before Easter, that the next year will result in a spike in the number of customers unable to make their home repayments. So not just financially stressed, but just simply unable. Um, he says this will cause defaults to, quote, reach previously unseen heights, or I should say that's not a direct quote, that's a paraphrase in the yeah. uh, reporting of what he was saying at the summit. But uh, And SQM Research, one of these um, well-regarded um, J- 
generally accurate uh, economic research companies, particularly focusing on the housing market because that's the big thing, uh, said in, that as of March, quote, the number of properties selling under distressed conditions had increased from 6,220, uh, increased to 6,220 from 5,917 the month before. And of course, that was a marked increase um, on what had been uh, beforehand. And the RBA says that 16% uh, of households are already in uh, what they call mortgage prison, which is what I was talking about before. Mm. You can't get out. Yeah. You can't refinance and you can't sell except at a loss. 16%. Um, uh, of households with a home loan are in mortgage prison. And uh, if the interest rates, mortgage rates, were to go up another one percentage point, which they probably will, because the RBA is locked in, basically they're on pause now for this month, but um, they said that will go up to 20% in the event of another one percentage point rise in mortgage rates. And that includes 45% of the poorest quarter of households um, already spending more than 30% of their income on mortgage repayments, um, which is the usual definition of um, financial stress, mortgage stress. And, and to, give, to give some context to, the, context to those numbers, Remember, in 2016, a, there was a report come out about a secret internal APRA report from 2007 where APRA analysts had produced an internal report, and it stayed internal because they weren't allowed to publish it, that of the state of the mortgage market then, mm -hmm. which was a much smaller bubble then, and they predicted that defaults were rising, and if defaults got to 7% defaults, and you've been talking about categories of you know mortgage prison of 16% and stuff like this, right? So if defaults got to 7%, that would be enough to trigger a, a, a broader collapse and a recession in Australia then. That's what mm -hmm. they predicted. Now, um, APRA never published that report. They kept it secret because they didn't want to, you know, APRA is one of those, well, to quote, former ANZ Bank Director John Dalson, APRA is the monster that protects the banks, mm -hmm. right, the bank regulator. Um, but that was a warning then. So your talk, your, the, the figures we're talking about now are these much bigger categories, a 16% mortgage prison, 45% mortgage stress. It could very easily get to those kind of figures, mm. those kind of levels, and then there would be a knock-on effect across Australia that can't be stopped. Yep. And like the conclusion you've got to draw is that, um, to tie this back into the, the, the banking thing, we, can't, we should never have allowed the financial system of Australia to be dominated by big, four big profit-gouging banks in the first mm. place, right? So if they're allowed to save their butts from a problem they created with the RBA of a housing bubble by preemptively reducing costs across Australia by shutting all the branches and mass withdrawing face-to-face -face banking services, mm. which permanently changes the service level of, of Australia, mm. right? If they're allowed to do that, then what's going to be left at the end when the dust settles and all and, and everything's you know um, reduced to ashes, right? That's what we're allowing them to do. We must intervene now in two ways: have a public bank operating through post offices that can guarantee all face-to-face -face banking service for all communities, so communities can function economically, and we need to have an intervention into this crisis, and not the sort of stupidity the RBA is doing by this. 
raising of interest rates. Yeah. Which th even they admit isn't working, but they're going to keep doing it anyway, because like the old aphorism goes, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to be a nail. The RBA guy who admitted this, that it isn't working, was Professor Ian Harper, mm -hmm. the man who is in, um, uh, what's his name, Llewellyn Smith's book. Um, mm. David Llewellyn Smith's book about the GFC, who revealed then, I think the book came out in 2010, mm. and he revealed that on the weekend of October 11 and 12, um, 2008, when all the banks went on their knees to the Rudd government and begged for the guarantees to keep them going, otherwise, otherwise they would be insolvent sooner rather than later. That was the quote. That was the reality of our banks. We're told our banks didn't need a bailout. Rubbish. They were propped up by the Rudd government. But that weekend, Ian, the same Ian Harper, according to that book, said to his wife on the Friday, go down to the ATM and get as much cash out as you can because I'm not sure they're going to be operating on Monday. Yep. Right? The public wasn't told this, but Ian Harper from the RBA was. Yep. Good luck finding an ATM in a lot of places <laughs> now. Right, that's right. And that's the other issue. You know, we've been talking about for years, bail-in, yep. you know, um, and the necessity for cash. Well... You can't pull out cash if you've got no bank branch or ATM. That's it. That's it. Cash is the off-ramp to the financial system where you can have your own money in your own hands and then making sure you can't get out of it. All right. We better move on, Richard, because um, we've got a rather large story here. So, Australia tortures a father of six under US orders. Now, you and Glenn talked about the basics of this case a few weeks ago mm -hmm. on this show. We want to do an update because, and I want, I want to highlight the personal side of what's going on here. So this is Dan Duggan. The man you're looking at on your screen is Dan Duggan. And he's a father of six from Orange in New South Wales. Um, and the, we'll put up a bunch of photos from, it, from this website, freedanduggan.org. While you were probably helping your kids or grandkids hunt Easter eggs on Easter weekend, Easter Sunday... Dan Duggan was in maximum security solitary confinement in Lithgow Prison in New South Wales. His prison cell has no heating. It's, it's actually, apparently the Lithgow Prison is one of the coldest prisons in Australia. He only has two ripped thin blankets for warmth. He had to buy a doona himself through the prison system in mid-February, but... There's no rush to deliver this thing. It still hasn't been delivered. Mm. He doesn't have a doona. It still hasn't been delivered. And his wife, Safreen, is not allowed to visit him and bring him one from the outside, which, as you point out, they've got all the technology to x-ray yeah. this stuff, etc. Everything that gets ordered in goes through the same scans. Yeah. It's, it's nonsense. It's bureaucratic nonsense, right? She could bring him one straight away, but she's not allowed to do this. It's got, they've got to go through the internal channels. This week, on Tuesday, I looked it up, Lithgow got down to one degree overnight on Tuesday because um, we're having this early cold spell, right? Um, uh, he is subject, Dan Duggan is subject to constant lockdowns because of staffing issues at the prison. Now, that, what that's doing is inhibiting critical access to his legal team um, on, on multiple occasions and that delays his ability to fight his case and it causes him significant emotional and psychological distress, they report on the website. He is fed the bare minimum. So he gets two small meals delivered at 11.30 a.m. and 2 p.m. I'm thinking maybe I should go to prison for a while um, and, <laughs> and go through this. I shouldn't make light of it, but 
Um, that's what he's, that's, that's all he's fed, two meals, 11.30 a.m. and 2 p.m. And anything additional, he's forced to buy at his own expense. So this is a pretty serious case. What Australian law did he break, Richard? None. None, None at all. The, the whole thing, this is an extradition request. He's, he's locked up because of an extradition request based on what are just run-of-the-mill white-collar crimes, even if he were guilty of everything they say, right? Yet, for some reason, he's in a prison where they only normally put convicted high-risk Offended, convicted and sentenced. Yep. This is not a remand prison. Yep. So again, you mentioned Assange. This is just like what they're doing to Assange in Belmarsh. That's the that's the hole they throw people into when they don't know what else to do with them. This so is this, this is, is one Australian of those. This is, well, I mean, I suppose sort the of. Goldman Supermax would be the Australian equivalent of Belmarsh. But this is the the next rung down, and it's not a very long long step down. Um, but uh, he's accused of training. Chinese military pilots in South Africa a dozen or more years ago, um, illegally, uh, which he and his colleagues, none of whom, the rest of whom have been charged with anything, um, say they never broke any laws, they did everything above board, but the I want, only... I want, sorry, I want to go through those details, but what's this latest stuff to do with ASIO yeah. involvement in this? Um, well, the... Uh, ASIO, according to his um, legal team, and they have got, this has got legs because they have got up a, an in, a formal investigation by the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, the IGES, which is a oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. statutory independent office in Canberra that uh, oversees and investigates um, misdoings, uh, misdeeds by the intelligence agencies. So the accusation from uh, Mr. Duggan and his lawyers is that ASIO, he was working in China um, and just going back and forward to Australia because his family's here yep. um, and his work was over there. Uh, and ASIO is accused of having lured him back here by uh, giving him a security clearance that would dramatically expand his work prospects for his flight training business in Australia uh, and then rescinding it once he came back. But that's, uh, this is the kind of thing that, uh, and you, you can yeah, sort right. of, it's almost, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it's, al <clears throat> it's sort of, you know, circumstantial evidence that, the, that this is purely a US designed operation because that's legal for them to do over there. It's not here. Ah. Um, and so this is reported. There's some um, articles on this in The Guardian that have been following the So the, the Inspector case. General of Intelligence and Security is looking at yeah. mis potential misconduct. Yeah, yeah, because um, if <clears throat> that were proven to be the case, um, because they challenged, his legal team challenged ASIO on this. They said that ASIO uh, refused to confirm or deny yep. <laughs> that old song and dance. So, but the IGES has the powers of a standing royal commission. Now, it's deliberately under-resourced by the government because um, they don't actually like having ASIO scrutinised by anybody, including the statutory office holders. But they have launched an investigation now. So, Before, before we begin, I just want to emphasize the point that what the the number one thing the family is calling for right now is this guy as you said if everything about it they're saying is true mm. it's a white collar crime yeah he deserves to be out on bail there's no justification for keeping him in prison no. he's got a family with six kids young young children um he's not a flight risk right mm. or anything like that it's just purely vindictive what they're doing 
and there being that vindictive on behalf of the United States, right? So first of all, get that in your craw and let that stick, that, that this is how we're treating somebody. And it is very similar to Assange, mm. etc. right? It's what we do now. But let's just talk about the context that is enough to make you say, hang on, is there anything to this at all, right? I want to go through some of the details. So for, first of all, Dan Duggan has not been charged with an offence in Australia. He has no criminal history anywhere in the world. Have a look at this footage. We might play a little clip of it. What you're seeing there is joyriders in Tasmania mm. doing loop-de-loops in his Top Gun plane. That's called Top Gun Tasmania. Mm. It got on, I think it got on Australian Story or whatever once back in the day. That's 12 years ago. Um, he, had a, he had this really world-class little flight thing down in Tasmania. They called yeah. it Top Gun Tasmania. Joyrides for tourists. Joyrides. You heard that, that. So that's Dan Duggan on the right there with the, with the glasses on. Um, he's the one not squealing with pleasure because <laughs> he's done it all before. So he was a Top Gun, right? That's what he was. Yeah, he, he was, I don't think we mentioned, he was an American. Uh, he was a United States Marine Corps pilot yep. and eventually pilot instructor. Um, but he moved to Australia when he retired. Um, and he, he met an Australian girl. Yeah, His married, wife is Australian. Yeah. Um, and so um, I think he was married once before, actually. But um, anyway, that beside the point. But he became a, an Australian American, uh, well, sorry, he became a, a permanent resident in Australia and then some years later got Australian citizenship and immediately renounced his American citizenship because he wasn't interested in going back. So he's an Australian citizen and he's been a, since, I think he's been an Australian citizen since about 2012. Yeah. He's been a permanent resident since about 2002, something like that. Yeah. Now, he, the arrest that, that was made on him last year, he was arrested, he just, I think he just dropped his kids off at school Right, and he was arrested by the um, federal police or whatever. Um, the arrest was made under a 2017 indictment that alleged that he provided military training to People's Republic of China pilots through a flying academy in South Africa between 2010 and 2012. And these dates are quite important. So his activities that he's been arrested for were 2010 to 2012. He was arrested in 2017, right? And there's a reason for the gap, and that's what we want you to focus on. Now, the, specifically, the, the, the indictment is providing services to a Chinese state-owned company for evaluations of Chinese military pilot trainees, testing of aviation equipment, training in tactics on landing on aircraft carriers. Not training in tactics on dogfighting or anything like that. No. Landing on aircraft carriers, like that's some special secret. They also add that he did this without seeking authorization and he provided false information to purchase a US training plane mm. called the whatever it's called now. I forget, you can look it up. Now, the specific charges, there's four specific charges. The legal charges are conspiracy to defraud the United States, 
conspiracy to launder money and two counts of violating the Arms Export Control Act. Those are the specific charges mm -hmm. that he has, um, that's in the indictment, and that's why he's been arrested and faces extradition to the United States on those charges. Are those charges true? Well, we don't know, right? We, we very strongly suspect. <laughs> well, it, it's worth mentioning, and, I, and I, I mentioned this when we talked about this um, a few weeks ago, but that, right, that list right there shows you that this is a bogus indictment, any, a bogus arrest anyway, even if he were guilty. Because none of those things, bar the conspiracy to launder <clears> money, are illegal under Australian law, which it has to be to be arrested and extradited from Australia to the US or vice versa. It has to be illegal in both countries. So conspiracy, criminal conspiracy is obviously yeah, illegal in both yeah. countries. But if the things you conspired to do are not a crime in one country, then neither is the conspiracy, whether or not it happened. Good point. So, and, and then, and this is why it ties up with um, the sovereignty question, because why are they, we then throwing our own rules to the, to the uh, overboard in order to do this? Because we're doing this under orders, right? Um, to give people a place to stand, Richard, to assess, you know, could this be true? Um, I wanted to cite two other cases. So the first one is another pilot who's basically been accused of doing similar to Dan Duggan. Mm. Work, this, for, work for the same outfit. Exactly the same outfit. It's called um, the Test Flying Academy of South Africa. That's who Dan Duggan worked for in 2012, 2010 to 12, And that's who this British pilot named Keith Hartley. And Keith Hartley is one of the British Royal Air Force's most famous top guns. He's the, he's the chief operating officer at this test flying academy of South Africa. Now, put this picture on the screen. This was in the Daily Mail last October. This is a very famous photo, apparently, in flying mm. circles. This is Keith Hartley is such a top gun. His call sign is Hooligan. Um, this is in 1988. And what may not look that... To, to the uninitiated, you might not think, well, so big, big deal. Well, so what's happening here is he's flying at 500 miles an hour without his canopy on and without oxygen, right? So he's showing off, but he's, he was doing it in a serious way. They're, they're trying to demonstrate something. This is what Keith Hartley was prepared to do, right? So he's very famous in, in British flying circles. Um, the, the, this Test Flying Academy of South Africa has been, and the, again, the dates are important, He's been, it's been operating since 2003. Hartley has worked there since 2005. I want to read a, quote, a couple of quotes now from the, the Daily Mail. He has operated in South Africa and in China where, according to a TFASA company profile, he was responsible for teaching, contracts and developing business. Based at Udsthorn, a dusty town in Western Cape, South Africa, better known for its ostrich farms, TFASA was named and shamed in this week's intelligence briefing for recruiting... British, Australian, Canadian, and New Zealand pilots to work for China. So this week's intelligence briefing, 2022's mm -hmm. this week's intelligence briefing, about something he's been doing since 2005. All right? Um, <clears throat> now, this, listen to this next paragraph. Fears that the company's work could lead to British secrets being shared, unwittingly or otherwise, with one of our most significant strategic adversaries are entirely legitimate. As the Daily Mail can reveal, the issue has been in the in-tray of the intelligence services for three years. So 22 minus 3 is 2019, right? Duggan 
has been arrested under an indictment that was put together, they said cobbled together, I like that term, mm. under the Trump administration in 2017. This guy, Hartley, has been under suspicion since 2019, both of them for things that, they were, that Hartley's been doing for well over a decade before that, a decade and a half almost, and Duggan did, uh, what, seven years earlier, right? Mm. Seven to five years earlier. Now, then listen to this quote. So the Daily Mail got the Academy's president. So the Academy is this uh, test-flying Academy of South Africa. Jean Rossou uh, said to the Daily Mail, quote, again, pay attention. The Ministry of Defence has known for years what we do. We know they know because they have been talking to some of the British pilots involved throughout. Why have they done nothing until now? He added, no secrets have been leaked because no matter what training we do, there are very strong rules around handing over information. There are clear red lines and the smallest infraction means instant dismissal. And so, Richard, the reason I'm highlighting these these dates is because they want the reader who's learning this in the news now to think, Mm. yeah, why are these top pilots earning all this money training our enemy. Our strategic adversary. Our strategic... Well, strategic <laughs> adversary, yes. Means but now, enemy. But now you've got, even got some stupid politicians who get out there and blurt out enemy, yeah. right? Our enemy. Was China Britain's, Australia's or America's enemy in 2010 <laughs> or in 2005? I can remember quite well that the British were leading the charge to become the clearing centre for the for Yuan in international trade and cozying up to China, the British yeah. government and banks um, as much as they possibly could. Xi Jinping came to Australia for a state visit, the first Chinese president to do so in 2014 under a liberal government. Yep, Tony Abbott. Tony Abbott um, was treated to a, a, a state uh, bank, you know, this formal state dinner banquet thing, um, gave a speech to the Australian parliament um, and signed these cooperation, these um, free trade agreements, uh, uh, strategic cooperation, what they call a strategic partnership agreement. Um, China was, China was the, almost literally the only game in town yep. uh, until, until 2017. We were all rushing into a closer economic relationship with China, uh, etc., right? Including the Americans, their, yeah. their trade was expanding and all that. Just yeah, that, that, I mean, they've trying to help these... save their butt in the GFC. Remember? Yeah, yeah, oh, help single handedly did it. Um, yep. And yeah, there's been all of this military build up, including in Australia since 2012. But it was like, you know, they were drawing this, this line a bit further away, yeah, yeah. divorcing the two, and that stopped in 2017. And that's the, that's that's the thing. So here's here's why these dates are important. Um, these guys were just like every other business-oriented people in the world oriented towards business with China. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keith Hartley, for a longer, like a, on a more permanent basis, uh, Dan Duggan, um, more temporarily with, the, with South Africa and then doing some other things. But they're just doing business with China. They've got skills. They're in demand over in China. They're not thinking of China as the enemy. Angus Houston, the former commander of the Australian Army, said last year, China is not the enemy. Hasn't even General Milley or one of those guys in the American Joint Chiefs of Staff or whatever said China is not the enemy, Yeah, right? Cut it out. Cut it out. And these guys did not treat China as the enemy. They're doing business deals with them. But because in 2016, when Trump got elected, 
The shift had started before that, though. In the last years of Obama, the, those special documents they produced, their national security assessments, etc. Yeah, um, national security strategy, defence force posture. In the last of years of Obama, they started naming China <laughs> as their greatest national security threat. Front run by Australia, actually, under Turnbull, the 2016 defence white paper. There you go. By a month or two, but obviously under US influence. No, exactly. And then when Trump got in, and Trump himself is a mixed bag on this question, but the people he employed weren't. Mike Pompeo, John Bolton, Peter Navarro, these people set out to create an enemy in China. To start, they, they want to pick a fight. Now, last week we played on the show the clip of John Mearsheimer the American uh, strategic realist and analyst saying America wants to fight with China now because they know if they wait a decade or two, they'll never win, right? So people like Pompeo, John Bolton, a war criminal who should be in jail, rotting in jail for what he did in the Iraq war, um, those guys set out to pick a fight. And because they chose to do that, suddenly the work of these people who would otherwise be regarded as heroes of the of their respective countries' militaries, suddenly... They're being called traitors and being mm. treated as traitors for what they're trying to, for, for just the normal business stuff they were trying to do, right? Now, I, I want to keep going because there's a few other cases here that this, resin, this, this is similar to. The Duggan case has an element of extraterritorial reach where America claims the right to reach out anywhere in the world and grab people, right? And there's some famous cases, the most famous being the one you've already mentioned, Assange. Right, Julian Assange didn't commit any crimes in America as well. He, nothing he did is a crime in his own country or well, any of the countries or, he, he or even in America. They had to manufacture had to one manufacture that didn't actually it. happen. <laughs> so the Assange case is that, but America says we have the right to assert our laws all over the world. Um, you pronounce that one. Meng <laughs> Wanzhou. Um, uh, Meng Wanzhou is the daughter of the founder of Huawei, and of course this was a very similar thing. And this was particularly bizarre because Donald Trump had spent so long trying to extort essentially this trade deal from the Chinese. And the Chinese came to the table to do the deal and they're sitting across from Trump down in Mar-a-Lago or whatever. That week, that very day, they're sitting across from Trump to sign the deal where they agreed to buy, what was it, $200 billion more American exports. Yeah, the stuff that weird blood Morrison blew yeah. up our, our exporters' markets <laughs> and the right. Americans picked it up. The same day, people in the White House called Canada and said, arrest the daughter of the founder of Huawei, China's flagship company. And the Canadians, yes sir, no sir, three bags full, sir, snapped to attention, did it straight away. Of course, in retaliation, the Chinese said, well, you little Canada want to treat us like this? Watch how the big boys play. And they quickly grabbed two Canadians off the street both named Michael, and they shoved them in jail until Canada let Meng Wanzhou go, mm. as they should have. You do not do this. If you're going to, if Canada is going to, Canada is going to be a supplicant like Australia to the United States and mm. treat people this way, China has every right to say, okay, that's how you play, this is how we're going to play. Yeah. And China, of course, at no point admitted this was reciprocal, but everyone knew it was, Yeah. right? Mind you, the Canadian intelligence agency effectively admitted that those guys were its agents, well, there you go. <laughs> Just like the Chinese said. So, so there was that case, and then they eventually let Meng Wanzhou go. And then the other one, though, I want to give a little bit of detail, is Frederick Pierucci. And Frederick Pierucci is 
a French executive who wrote a book about his experience, and it's called The American Trap. Let me just go through, through some of the details quickly. He was an executive of France's nuclear power company, Alstom. Oh, quick call out to Citizens Party supporter Ed Downs, who wrote a really good book review for our Australian Alert Service on this last year, on this, on this book, um, and brought the case to my attention when I read the book, and it was really enlightening, but it really much relates to this. Because what I'm going to go to, what, what it sh- the Frederick Pierucci case shows that America will target individuals with legal charges in order to, in order to further a larger agenda, right? And that's what we think is going on with um, Dan Duggan. So in the case of Pierucci, he was an executive for France's nuclear power company, Alstom. Now, um, uh, even though it's a nuclear power company, it also does things where it'll just provide things like um, boilers, Full of power stations and whatever it manufactures those sort of things. That company was accused of bribery to win an Indonesian contract. Now Pierucci didn't bribe anyone. He wasn't involved in bribing anyone, but he did know that it had happened. But the kind of bribery isn't. It was you you you, you buy a you you pay for a consultant to mm. help you to help you advance your cause. And this happens everywhere, but including of course it here, does. by the way. Of nobody, course it does. Nobody can pretend otherwise. Of course it does, and it's done by the Americans as well. So <clears throat> anyway. The United States, though, claims the right to arrest anyone over breaches to its laws that are in any way connected to the United States, even in the most, um, you know, far-reaching, like... like Just completely tenuous. Very tenuous. I'll give you some examples. Any contract that's based in US dollars, which is almost all contracts... Well, it used to be almost all contracts in the world because of the US dollar reserve currency. And this kind of behaviour is why it's increasingly not anymore. That's right. So if it's a contract in US dollars, the Americans say, we have jurisdiction over that and they can arrest people based on it, even if it's two countries have nothing to do with them. Or even, get this, if the emails to facilitate the, the, the deal as they're going around the world spend any time on American servers... That's the basis for the Americans saying, we have jurisdictions, we can do that. Yep. We can grab you. So right? there you go. Use Proton, not Gmail. <laughs> There's the ad. Can Proton... Can... I mean, it, it's probably can not actually any more secure. It's probably not actually any more secure, but at least it's not hosted in America. Okay, let me keep going. So in, um, uh, in, in 2013, the United States Department of Justice arrested Pierucci when he landed at JFK. If he had known he was going to be arrested, he wouldn't have landed, right? He had no idea, no idea that he was about to be arrested. He had no idea he was even being looked at. But, um, so they arrested him when his flight landed at JFK. They then put him through the same kind of torture that, like, he's, at worst, it's white collar. He's put, through, he's put into a horrible prison system, um, horrible, absolutely horrible conditions that are designed to break him. And he was there for 25 months they put him under enormous pressure, and this is the whole this is the whole basis of the American legal system in this regard, Richard. They they extort their targets to plea bargain, plea bargain, because believe it or not, this this great democracy that if they hear that some other country has has um, won an election based on ninety percent of the vote or whatever, mm. or or the the Chinese whatever the rate of the Chinese legal system is at convictions, they'll say, oh, yeah, look at, look at their near-perfect rate. That's because they're corrupt. You know, there's no mm-hmm. justice in China. The rate of US Department of Justice convictions is 93%. Mm-hmm. You know how they get that? <laughs> Through extorting people yeah. to plea bargains. Roughly 90% of that is plea bargains, not the courts. Yep. <clears throat> really high proportion of people 
who'd go to court, if you can afford to, and stand up to the strain, get acquitted because it's, they're false charges. But what happens is if you're, you've got to be able to afford to do that, you've got to have, and you've got to have a certain amount of defiance because what they did to Pierucci was they gave him his options, plea bargain for a much smaller sentence and because he had young family, etc. back in France and whatever, plea bargain or we will hit you with everything, you may face three decades in prison, something like that, mm. right? And, and first of all, you're reeling in shock at the idea that what you did could end up seeing you three, you, the, at the white collar thing that was done that you had nothing directly to do with, your company did it, um, had, could somehow see you end up with three decades in a US prison and, and the prison that you're being told, the prison you're in when you're being told this is literally torture for you, right? So, you know, you're thinking, oh my God, how could I do that? I'll never see my family again, and I'm being offered, say, 18 months or whatever if I if I accept this plea bargain. But the plea bargain involves selling out someone else in the company, mm-hmm. right? And and so it's it's that kind of tension they put on him. So anyway, he ended up spending 25 months in a U.S. prison. Here's how it resolved, though. Um, his company was fined. Alstom was fined 772 million dollars, which, based on its finances at the time, it couldn't pay it, and because it couldn't pay it, it was forced to sell out, to sell itself mm-hmm. to its main American competitor, General Electric, which happened to be the company it beat out for the Indonesian contract. Yep. And that was the issue all along. And once that was done, Pierucci was released. The Americans extorted France to sell out their main nuclear engineering company to General Electric, and they tortured this guy in order to do it. And this is what Pierucci has written his book about, and this is what he, he's going around the world warning about. And he's calling the way the Americans do it the um, the long the long arm jurisdiction of America is 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 used to extort countries by torturing the individuals involved to benefit Wall Street mm-hmm. and American corporations. Right. And incidentally, Richard, the French minister who dealt with this case, who had to who had to go through the details, the French government minister including signing off on the sale of Alstom under these terrible circumstances, happened to be Macron, the current president of France. Emmanuel Macron. Emmanuel Macron. And just maybe, is this why Macron, on his visit to China last week, I mean, when I say just why, has this helped contribute to Macron's outlook? When When he went to China last week and set the cat among the pigeons, including by saying, we have to make ourselves more independent of the US dollar. Mm-hmm. Well, you'd have to think so. I mean, especially uh, whatever you think of Macron, um, I think everyone would freely admit the guy has an ego the size of a planet. Um, And 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 having that put over him would definitely rankle. Of course. (laughs) And and also (laughs) chauvinism, which is not necessarily a good thing, but it's where countries, um, you know, assert their own, they're proud of their independence and their identity, national pride, right? And so on, yeah. Chauvinism is the French word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. And so, yeah, because what's the news? Macron has put the cat among the pigeons. He, what he said in China has totally freaked out everyone in the United States and Europe. And right? Australia. And Australia. <laughs> but even though it's freaked out everyone in Australia, the other thing that's freaked out everyone in Australia, and you can quickly talk about this, is our Prime Minister, who we love having a bagging on this show lately, we wish to do it. We, wouldn't love, we wish we didn't love it, but he's, he's sort of pushed us to that. Finally, he's done something that we've thought, well, okay, 
because he was invited to go to NATO's summit in Lithuania and he's turned them down. Or he hasn't officially turned them down, but basically let it be known he's not going, doesn't intend to go. So, okay, so we have to reserve the possibility that, he, that under pressure he may change his mind because he's coming under pressure, including from the media. Yeah, and, you know, there's this, um, I don't have a copy here, but there's this, um, if, you, if you think about what you're reading, hilarious article in the Australian Financial Review that just shows you the state of journalism in Australia today. Like, there's this guy, Andrew Tillett, yep. the political correspondent for the AFR. You know, if you thought this guy was a journalist, read, if you've got access, read his article today um, or posted yesterday afternoon on their website about why Albanese would be a fool not to go to... It should be you know, just a shoo-in that he goes to NATO because we're trying to... We're trying to put together these alliances to contain China, and we're, and we're trying to, you know, we're, we're trying to get support for Ukraine against Russia, and we've been knocked off our pedestal as the largest non-NATO donor, and, and all, <laughs> and yeah, ter- isn't that terrible? That's terrible. Um, oh, quick, let's donate and, some more. <laughs> and you know, and why in God's name wouldn't would Albanese not immediately say yes, sir? I'm coming to NATO, sir. So this is a journalist and whose this is job the, is to report the weather and, and the political developments and instead he's writing an opinion column to pressure the Prime Minister to go to NATO. Yeah, and it's one of the longest articles I've ever seen from him. Most of his stuff reads like it was copy and pasted from yeah. Defence Department background briefs. But, uh, <laughs> when he, you know, this is not journalism, you know, hashtag. But what it, is, what it illustrates is the enormous pressure that's been brought to bear over the last five or six years to make sure that Australia marched in lockstep with this radical shift out of the United States to provoke a war. And you've got to see that agenda uh, as the context for what's happened to poor old Dan Duggan, right? Where, uh, you know, I don't care if he was if he's, you know, born in America or whatever. He's, an, he's a fellow Australian. He's an Australian citizen. He is being tortured. His family is being psychologically tortured, right? They're, faced, they're looking down an abyss at losing their father to this terrible system um, because we are going along with this agenda. So you've got Assange, you've got Dan Duggan, you've got David McBride, who, by the way, in November, he's the update on David McBride's case, the whistleblower for war crimes in Afghanistan, our friend who I've interviewed on the show. David McBride's trial proper begins in um, November now. They had to, it took him... It, they had to wait till November to find a spot big enough for the trial because David McBride has one witness himself and his honesty that they want to bring 20 witnesses. The government wants to bring 20 witnesses against him to say why blowing the whistle on war crimes should make, means he should spend 50 years in jail, right? So you've got these cases. Look at, you know, take the beam out of your own eye before you take the splinter out of your, your friends. Look at what we're doing, people. The, the, the inhuman things we're doing in the name of these agendas, right? And so... I think um, we'll put a link below. Sign the petition to help Dan, Dan Duggan. Just get behind the case. At a minimum, he should be on, on bail, right? Sign the petition, help get behind that case and um, help us keep an eye on these cases and highlight them because the people that are responsible for them are not good actors. They have a nefarious agenda. They are, they, they've sold out Australian sovereignty and if you're a patriotic Australian, that should enrage you no end and want, want you to um, be part of the fight to get our sovereignty back. Um, but with that, we're nearly out of time. Any final comments? Uh-huh. I think we pretty much covered it. All right. Well, thanks very much for joining us um, again, Richard, with all your specialised knowledge. Thanks, thanks to the viewer for tuning in. Remember, like I said in the first segment, help us get the message out to those towns. Look, look below 
Um, we'll, we'll pause the pause the show at that point and read the names of the towns and, and any ones you recognise. Help contact those councils and those towns to make submissions to the regional banking inquiry. Um, if you haven't made your own submission, make sure you do and sign the petition for Dan Duggan. And um, uh, otherwise, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week for more of the Citizens Report. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.